Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley and Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley and Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Jaime Guerrero. Jaime is a partner out of Foley's Los Angeles office, where he's a member of the firm's Government Enforcement Defense and Investigations Practice Group, as well as the hiring partner for Los Angeles and co-chair of Foley's Hispanic Attorneys Affinity Group. In this discussion, we cover a lot of ground. We start off by Jaime reflecting on growing up in San Francisco as a first-generation American, the son of parents from Mexico and El Salvador, and he talks about what it was that caused him to pick the University of California, Berkeley, for college and how that was influenced by his experience as a first-generation American. He also shares about the three years he spent after college working in public accounting at Deloitte and discusses what appealed to him about law school and why he decided to attend. He then reflects on his time in law school and says that early on, he knew what his dream job would be, and that was as an assistant U.S. attorney. But what you'll hear is it took him about six years to get that job. He spent the first five years of his career working in the litigation department of another very large law firm and also clerking for a federal judge until becoming a criminal assistant U.S. attorney in Los Angeles. Jaime shares how that was his dream job, but that eventually he decided to return to private practice just due to life circumstance, and he discusses why it was he chose Foley. Of course, I also get Jaime to talk about his white-collar practice, which is really focused on U.S. Department of Justice and U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission investigations, and how, for him, as a fluent Spanish speaker, he has an emphasis on matters that are happening in Latin America. I close out the discussion by getting Jaime to share his advice as hiring partner, specifically for students of color, on what they should consider when picking a large law firm. And we also end with Jaime giving some fantastic insight on the importance of finding a practice that you love. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jaime Guerrero. Jaime, welcome to the podcast. I feel like this is a long time coming. We'll just jump (laughs) right in with how these always start, and I'll have you introduce yourself. Thanks, Alexis. It's a pleasure to be on. So my name is Jaime Guerrero. I am a partner at Foley. I am a partner in the Government Enforcement Defense and Investigations Group, which is a fancy way of saying that I do white-collar criminal defense work here for Foley. And I've been with the firm for almost 15 years, only 15 years in December. My practice is primarily in the government enforcement space. Doing, I do a lot of investigations and enforcement work with the DOJ, the SEC, and local U.S. attorney's offices when it's government enforcement work. And I do a smattering of civil litigation as well. I try to avoid that, and we can get into that later, but most of my work is in government enforcement work. And a lot of anti-corruption work, which lends me to travel uh, extensively through Latin America because I speak uh, Spanish fluently. We're going to unpack all that. And I also will (laughs) share the acronym for your group, Government Enforcement Defense Investigation. So at Foley and Lardner, we call your group the JEDI group, which I think may win for the coolest practice group acronym. Um, And everybody should be be aware of that. But before we unpack your your practice and why it is and how it is you can introduce yourself that way, let's start somewhat at, at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? 
So I was born and raised in San Francisco, California. I was actually born in the city, lived in the city until I left for college. And I still consider San Francisco home, even though I've lived now in LA for probably 23 years of my life. But I still consider San Francisco home. My mom still lives there. My sister lives there. My nieces live there. Um, It's home. So that's where I grew up. And I want a snapshot of life as a child in San Francisco. Like, you know, what were you into if I found you in elementary school or middle school? You know, what what was keeping you busy? So I I loved to read when I was a kid. I really loved to read. And I would just read anything I could get my hands on, which meant I was reading books I probably shouldn't have been reading at a young age. Because my older, I had an older sister and I would pick up whatever book I could that was in the house and just read. I loved to play sports. I played Back before we had to specialize in sports at a young age, I played all the sports through elementary school and high school, and I'm a big baseball fanatic, so I'm in the middle of the playoffs right now and loving that our Giants are doing well, and so I would listen to the radio and listen to baseball you know, whenever I wasn't in school, and I still do. I have an iPad at my desk whenever there's baseball season. I don't really care who's playing, and I have baseball on the background while I'm watching or working just because I love the sound. It reminds me of my childhood. So this, so it's both. And I'll say, I feel like over half of the guests I have on, you know, the lawyers from our firm will say I was a bookish child, perhaps a bit of a nerd. And maybe you had a little bit of that with all the reading, but it sounds like also a, a more than healthy dose of activities and, and sports. And was it, was it all the sports? You just kind of played what you could play? Yeah, I played. So I played football, baseball, soccer, primarily focused on baseball because that's the one sport I just loved when I was a kid. I think it probably because my dad and I had a connection through baseball, which we had through our entire lives. And so everything I think of baseball, I think of him, which is, you know, and I think of growing up and playing baseball and going to the Little League games and going to the baseball games in San Francisco. And so uh, it, it brings me really a lot of pleasure. So that's the thing I played my entire, you know, from when I was seven years old until I graduated from high school. That was what I always played. But I, I will say I was a nerd. I mean, I have no doubt saying that I was, I went to an all-male Catholic high school in San Francisco. And interestingly enough, I was in all the AP courses and everything else because I, I was a nerd, but I also played sports. So I had my foot in both worlds. I had one foot with the kids who were off to go to college and do what they want to do and a foot in the door with all the kids who played sports. And so it was really fun because I got to sort of balance it out and, and enjoy both worlds when I could. I love asking that question because I'm trying to show people that lawyers are normal people too. <laughs> Before, are we though before, really exact, before law school hit you know people had interests and hobbies not related to the law and obviously and still do today so i appreciate you responding to that question and i want to get a sense for you okay let's say you're in you're in high school and that process you're trying to figure out where you're going to college what was that process for you how did you decide where you were going to go and why so that's a good question i guess maybe i'll, I'll back up a little bit so i I'm Latino, I'm Hispanic. My dad's Mexican, my mom's from El Salvador. They both immigrated here. So I was first generation. And my parents, my dad finished fourth grade. My mom uh, went through high school, I think, maybe a little bit of college, but like more like a, the secretary school in El Salvador. And so they had no idea about college. I mean, they just There was no concept for them about college. And because of that, I really had to do it all on my own. And I, I'm sure you've had other, and I know you've had other guests who said the same thing. And so, you know, I really leaned on my college counselor because he basically said to me, look, you know, you have got really good grades. You have an interesting background and why not try to go to school? And so go to college. And I I just hadn't thought about it. Honestly, Alexis, it wasn't something that I was, I knew I wanted to go to college, but like the idea of applying or where to go, I didn't. So I went to Berkeley undergrad. When I applied to college, I didn't know that Berkeley's 
acronym was Cal. And that's how much a little I knew about college because it just wasn't a family thing we talked about. My older sister. Yeah, and by the way, so your parents, obviously, I'm assuming they were supportive of you going, but what was their view on it? Was it like, we think you should go or you'll figure it out or get a job or how did they view it? <laughs> that's, a, you know, it's funny. They, I will say they were supportive because I knew they knew I wanted to do it. They didn't understand the reason why. Like it, it was, you know, because they didn't do it. And my dad was a relatively successful car salesman. Like their view was like, well, you don't really need to go to college to do well. And I said, well, Maybe not, but I really want to go because I love to learn and I love to read. And I love to study and I, I, I feel like it's a thing I should do. And so they never opposed it, but they just weren't supportive. They weren't like, I, I didn't do a college tour, like, obviously, because they didn't know that you even did that in those days. And so I really just applied to the schools close to home because that was all I really knew. And that you was know? college. Those are colleges. That was, What's, they were. What yeah. more and, is there? And you know, I, I was lucky enough to live you know, 10 miles from Berkeley. And so I applied there and I, I, I got into all the UCs and- just the fear of going, leaving home, I think, sort of kept me home. I, I just, I didn't know any better. Like, I really wanted to, but at the same time, like, what if it doesn't go well? If I go to Berkeley, it doesn't work out. I'm back home. It's really easy. And I could get in my car and go home if I wanted to on a weekend. Not that I did very often, but, you know, it was it was there. And I think, you know, jumping far ahead now, I've got a kid who just started college. And it was a far different experience for him because both my one thought wife and I went to college and law school. And so we already had an idea of like, this is how we're at least get him open to the process. I had none of that. I mean, the, the extent of their participation in my college decision was giving me checks for my fees for applications for undergraduate and then helping to pay for it when I actually got accepted I was going to go. That was it. You just see me nodding a lot because I think that's an experience <laughs> a lot of people have as, you know, and we may get into this later, but as we both know, particularly with my role at Foley, Director of Diversity and Inclusion, I think educating people, particularly in the legal industry, that not everybody knows how to navigate all these processes <laughs> perfectly, whether it be college or law school. And for a lot of people, regardless of background, but particularly when we're talking, you know, first generation, it's like that's school. There's a school right there. Like, why would I apply to go wherever on the other side of the country? I can be near my house. I've applied to some schools. <laughs> and so, and I, I, and I think it's important that we talk about that experience. I really appreciate you sharing that. But so you did decide on Berkeley, which of course is a very good school. What, what was the plan? What, what did you major in? And what was that like for you transitioning to college? Oh boy. I didn't have a traditional tra transition because I, I thought, well, maybe I'll do like a commuter school. I'll go to, I'll go from home and I'll, I'll go to Berkeley initially. And it, you know, it is, it, I wouldn't say it's a big commuter school, but there are some kids who commute to Berkeley, not a lot. And I did it for the first semester and I realized pretty quickly, I can't do this. This is not going to work. So I got an apartment in my second semester, my first, of my first year. And then I moved into co-ops and everything else. And it was a great way to meet people and sort of get an idea of what I wanted to do. Initially, my thought was to go into business. And so I thought, I want to go into the business world. I don't know what that really means, Alexis. I don't know what that really means as, it's as a profession, but it's business, right? I mean, what right. you can't go wrong with an accounting and finance degree. And so mm -hmm. I applied to the Haas Undergraduate School of Business, which is a school within Berkeley that you have to apply to. And they only accept you after two years and they accept a few kids. And, you know, worked out great. I got in, luckily. And that really gave me more of a view of what I wanted to do long term, at least what I thought I wanted to do, right? I mean, at the time, you could have a mindset of, I want to do X, Y, and Z. And I think now with my hindsight, as old as I am, I could not recognize having that is great, but understand that it's going to be a 1% chance that actually really happens in life. And so enjoy what you can and, and try different things, and which is what I did. 
And so your focus ends up being accounting and finance with the idea that after I'm done with this, I'll go into business. <laughs> and so fast forward a bit, you get closer to graduation or maybe you graduate. I graduated. And, and then, what, then what happens? Yeah. And so d- during my senior year in college, all the big, back then the big six accounting firms were interviewing. I applied through a few to a few of them and I got a couple of offers. I ended up going to Deloitte and Touche. It was no Deloitte Touche back then. Now it's Deloitte. And I was an accountant in the big six accounting, an auditor in the big six accounting firms. And it was probably one of the greatest decisions I ever made. And I, I didn't know anything about it. And again, my family had nothing in terms of like the context for me to do this. I just happened to go to a recruiting event they had on campus because they had free food and free drinks. And I met a bunch of people and, and it worked out great. But the ability to sort of learn business and how it really works and work with people who were and a really good trainers. What I mean by that is Deloitte back then and Deloitte now, and I still love the, the firm. They really do a good job of training people and really getting you to learn the business and learn how to audit. And that's one of the reasons why they're always rated one of the top places to work going out of undergrad or even just period. And so I, I did that and I did it for three years and I learned so much and I made amazing friends and I came out of that understanding, okay, I know I don't want to be an auditor the rest of my life, but I've really gotten an amazing foundation in business and how businesses work and how businesses think. Because when you're in companies' offices day to day, you sort of understand what do they really care about? What do these, all these different terms in a balance sheet mean? You know, what is a balance sheet? What is, you know, all that stuff that you learn in undergrad, you actually get to apply it and do it in a way where you're learning meeting with the client, meeting with your, your peers, and really developing skills that lifelong are going to be amazing. And so I still credit them, even though I don't do accounting anymore. But a lot of what I learned, I still use on a very regular yeah. basis. Well, and like you said, you're as a, as a consultant, you're also seeing this for so many different clients. So that experience sounds really important. And also, I'm just curious, because I, you know, I think now and then as well, getting a job at Deloitte after college is a is a is a big deal. That's an accomplishment. Did your did your parents what did they think, by the way, when you entered that field? Are they kind of like he he does stuff in an office? That's honestly <laughs> Alexis, that really and, it, and even now, like I think if you know my dad passed a few years ago, my mom still she knows I'm a, knows I'm a lawyer, but if I try to explain or what I really do, she looks at me with a glazed look over right and and, and and with love. Like whatever he's doing, he's sound like he's happy, that's all I care about. And they didn't really understand what I was doing at Deloitte. I mean, they knew I was working in a big firm. And I think, you know, when they tell their friends and they, they've they heard the name Deloitte or they see the advertisement, they know who they are. So they're proud of that. But if in terms of the nitty gritty and what I really did, absolutely no concept. I mean, it just was, which is fine. I mean, it, 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 there wasn't a thing we had to discuss, but, you know, it's, I guess I, I, I pivot to like having kids now and I think like our kids are going to have a much better understanding of what the world is and what they should be doing or could be doing to all have those discussions that I never had as a first generation student with absolutely no experience in college whatsoever. Or, yes, you know, very much business. so. Well, and I also think sometimes whether it be in the accounting world or finance world or consulting world or legal world, we'll trade on our perceptions of reputation, right? Well, this person should just know that it's desirable to work at you know PwC or Deloitte or a top law firm. 
And that's not always, I mean, it's just, it's, you can't take that as given. And I think some people will even be like, well, you know, that's unfortunate. They're not aware. But but truly, there's lots of people who are not going to be impressed just based on, because they actually don't have a family that's pushing, because their parents are like, you got a job. That's great. Um, and so I think it's it shows also as employers, particularly as we expand the net where we recruit, we also need to offer more than that. You have to offer more than just, oh, well, you should know this is a you know big law firm and a great place to work. Yeah. And and it's funny because when I was interviewing back then, and I, and I vividly recall this still, Alexis, I was interviewing with a number of firms. And one of the firms that I got an offer from that was with Deloitte was Arthur Anderson, which no longer exists. And at the time I chose Foley, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Deloitte, it was because of the people. I met the people at Arthur Anderson and they seemed perfectly fine. People were, you know, a nice place to work, but I didn't get the same vibe that I got when I went to Deloitte. I mean, it was just a completely different vibe. And that to me was such the difference maker, you know, putting aside everything else about the firms. And at the time, Arthur had a much better reputation than Deloitte did. They were considered the the white shoe type of law firm, but for accounting world. And, um, but I chose Deloitte because I like the people. They really came right down to that. Yeah, because ultimately people don't know employers always by reputation. And I think often we assume that they do. That's exactly right. And I think also the other thing is I think people, you know, and it happens at all stages of, of, of your career, right? And no matter what you're doing in life, you choose things based on the name you the name you've heard, the name you know. And when I went to Deloitte, at the time I went to Deloitte, it was between Deloitte and Arthur Anderson. Those are the two firms that I was considering. And Arthur Anderson was the sort of the premier auditing big six accounting firm at the time. But I really liked the people better at Deloitte. I mean, at a very base level, I thought to myself, if I'm going to have to work with people that I, that I in this area, and not have to, but if this is the career I'm going to go down or the path I'm going, I want to go with people that I like. And at a very, you know, back then, I just, I remember the test that somebody gave me back then that I still use now when I'm recruiting. And it was a, somebody interviewed me from Deloitte and said, look, if when you're making a decision, ask yourself, could you sit down and have a beer with that person or have lunch with that person or dinner or be at a coffee machine copying something at 10 o'clock at night? Would you want to do it with the person you're sitting with? And I just said resoundingly yes with everybody I've met with from Deloitte. And that made my decision so much easier when I had to decide where to go. It's also funny hearing you say that because, you know, we won't dive too far into this, but as we all know, Arthur Anderson isn't here anymore. You know, there isn't a like vestige of it still exists with Accenture, but to hear that Deloitte wasn't the biggest name that you were considering, I think is probably interesting to people given that, you know, how how large and well-respected it, you know, continues to be. So that's, that's really great insight. But so where does, where does law school come, come along? You said you knew you didn't want to be an auditor, but right. how does law school come on the scene? It was interesting because I, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. It's funny because once I was at, at Deloitte, you know, all my friends who were at Deloitte, it was sort of like this common feel like, okay, we got to go to graduate school. We're, there was a few that decided they wanted to stay, which they decided to do that and go in-house or do different things or, you know, do different things. And there was a big group that were like, we're going to get our MBAs or go to law school. And I had never thought of law school at that point, Alexa. It never crossed my mind once. But I think probably in my second year at Deloitte, I had a really good friend of mine who's still one of my best friends who was going to go to law school, who was in law school, and he told me about what he was doing. And I thought, you know, that sounded really fascinating. It's a lot of reading. You get to try interesting cases and meet different clients. And really what I thought at the time was I wanted to be a, a prosecutor, and I didn't know what that meant. I mean, I'll just say I didn't know really what that meant. I just thought 
I'm not saying I followed his career, but he was considering going to DOJ. And I thought, wow, that'd be interesting. I, not that I knew anything about it, but that sounds fascinating. And it really between my MBA and a, and a JD, it really came down to, well, I've gotten a CPA. Why not get a JD? And then if I decided to do business, I could do that. Or I could decide to do law. You know, We'll figure that out. So that really was ultimately what pushed me to go to law. And so this is some time ago, but how do you decide where to go? And then where did you end up going? It was was sort of a practical financial decisions. I I applied to three private schools and all the UCs. And my thought was, I'll go to the private schools if, A, I get in, which was not guaranteed because I knew it would be really hard. And they were all ranked very highly. And I thought, if I don't go in, I want to go to one of the UCs because they're, at the time, were really cheap. And so I'm dating myself, but... In comparison to private school, I think, and I want to say like $40,000 a year, UCLA was $6,000 a year. Oh my gosh, yep. (laughs) Right. And so that was back then. And I know now it's much different. So it came down to choosing schools. I ended up choosing UCLA to go to law school, which was fateful for a number of reasons. But I ended up going to UCLA. And then that's one of the reasons why I ended up staying in LA for a while and leaving and coming back to LA. But it was a great experience and it was really expensive. I came out really owing basically nothing from undergraduate, from law school. And it, it made my ability to choose where to go, what to do after law school much simpler. That's amazing. And for people who are in law school now, and I, and I know that there's a number of state schools that are still significantly less expensive than private, but still, yeah, they're going to hear $6,000 and be like, oh my gosh, because we know what <laughs> we know what sticker price is for, for yes. certain schools. I know for me, particularly for undergrad, I had some regrets that I didn't go to the University of um, Wisconsin because that like tuition would have been like six or $12,000. Of course, I choose to go to some private school for a lot more than that. But what, what was it like once you started law school? And once again, we need to, we have ground to cover, but I'm curious just your reflections on that adjustment to being in law school. Did you like it? Was it challenging? Absolutely loved it, Alexis. I think and this is one of the things that, you know, I, and I, I don't want to get into a lot of recruiting, and, but you know, having that time off between undergraduate and law school was invaluable. And not just by what I learned, but it made my decision to go to law school much more focused, A, and much more when I got there, I was like, I get to be in school again. This is amazing. I had these amazing professors talking to me and teaching me. And there were all these really bright people who are all, you know, doing the same thing. And having that ability to take time off really got me refocused and energized for law school. I absolutely loved it. And I think so my, I met my now wife then in law school, and she had a very different experience, but she went straight through. And I think she would say, and I'm not taking it in her career, but that she probably would have wished she'd taken time off. Now, we're both glad we did what we did because we met. But, you know, I think having that time off was so key for me. And, you know, when I look at recruits and I'm, yeah, we'll jump ahead. I love to see people who've taken time off because I, I think it gives them a perspective on life, on doing something different. But ultimately, obviously, people have their choices and reasons why they do it. And I will never begrudge a reason for why somebody wants to go straight through. But I thought it was invaluable. And I I loved it. Absolutely loved law school because of it. And by the way, your advice about hiring recruits is very welcome. I mean, regardless, but also (laughs) as also as a hiring partner for for San Francisco, which we have not gotten into. But I, I completely understand what you're saying. I was somebody who went straight through. I had like two weeks off between graduating from undergrad and starting law school. And I do think the way you approach it, and this is not to knock anyone who's gone straight through because that was my life, but 
there's more of like, it's like, this is the next thing for me. It feels like this obligation. I'm a little bit afraid to go get a real job. And I do think for a lot of the people who've either taken even just a handful of years off or significant time and switch careers, there's this, oh my gosh, this is really neat. I'm back in school. I have the ability to, you know, kind of nerd out about all these topics that I, you know, didn't have the bandwidth to, particularly when you're an auditor at Deloitte. <laughs> I mean, you were, <laughs> you were working a lot as far as right. that, my understanding. Right. Okay. So you really enjoy law school. How do you start figuring out what you want to do? It's, I mean, you kind of did stick with that path of wanting to be a prosecutor or have that sort of bend to your legal career. But I'd love if you could close the gap a bit on, and I know Foley also was not your first law firm. So talk, talk what happens next after law school? I went into law school saying I wanted to be a prosecutor. That was the thought. But I didn't really know what that meant. And I think I mentioned that earlier. Like I, I knew being a prosecutor, what you know, there was a DA and there was an attorney general. I didn't know very much about the federal system at all. Like I just hadn't heard of it. And so my first year in law school, I had a professor who was a former federal prosecutor, former AUSA. And my second year, I had another one. And both with both of those, how they talked about that job was like that. That's what I want to do. Like I'd, I'd never heard of it. Like again, I, you know, I didn't come from law. I didn't have friends who were in law or family who were in law in, in the real, uh, you know, in a depth way. So it was something that really opened my eye with these professors. And I, I liked them both so much as professors. I thought, God, they're both amazing people. And what they just are describing sounds amazing. That's what I want to do. My career is going to be that if I can do it. And if, again, I, I do this without really realizing what that means. Like I, I say that not knowing how hard it is to really do that. Like it, To me, it's like, okay, well, that's the next step. I'll just do that. So I, I spoke to both of them and they said, well, if you want to be a federal prosecutor, you have to work at a big law firm. And you you should try to clerk for a federal judge. So then my next step was okay. I've got to do both those things, and I did. And so you know, I at that point I've pivoted and said, okay, I, I want to be an AUSA. I want to be an assistant U.S. attorney. I don't know where. I don't know how to get a job, but I know I've got to go to a big firm. So let me go to the biggest firm I know in San Francisco and also get a clerkship, which is what I did. So I started off my career at Morrison and Forster in San Francisco. And to put it in context, this was a very long time ago, Alexis. So I was, we're talking 1997. In San Francisco alone, they hired 43 summer associates, just San Francisco, and not including the rest of the offices around the country. And, you know, it was the most prestigious firm in San Francisco. It was a great place to, to get your name on a resume and or get their, their name on a resume. And I will say this in the kindest way possible. It wasn't my favorite five years of my legal career. And a big part of it was the people. I guess I'll put it that way. It wasn't, the, the, there were days where I truly, and, and my wife could easily attest to this, I dreaded going to the office. I would I would get up in the morning, literally dread having to get up and go to the office, but all with a mindset of like, I've got to do this. I've got to get a job with the US Attorney's Office because I can't see myself practicing in private practice for the rest of my career. I'm saying that as a partner now at a, at a big yes, office. at a private firm. Well, you're, you're, <laughs> I assume are at, at at that time. So you're you know you're fresh out of law school, you're learning how to be a lawyer. You're in is the group essentially white collar at that point, no, no, or is it general no, litigation or what, just what general were you civil doing? litigation? Yeah, I was just doing general yep. civil litigation work, and I so in, in just to put a little context, I, I so I went to work for Morrison Forster for a year. I went to a clerkship, a federal clerkship with a judge here in LA, a now deceased past. Uh, federal district judge named Robert J. Kelleher, who was a senior judge here in LA. 
and did that for a year, a little over a year, like 10 months, no, I'm sorry, 16 months, because there was some overlap with another uh, clerk who couldn't start right away and went back to Morrison and Forster. And I went in, I was in the general civil litigation practice at Morrison and Forster. And I think probably what it was is I just didn't like civil litigation. I think at a very base level, something I probably should have recognized far earlier, but I recognized it far later. And so I don't know if it's necessarily Morrison and Forster general that was the issue or more the issue of, I just didn't like civil litigation. No, part of it was Morrison and Forster. I will say that. Well, it's, but it's funny though, because, but things are also so, it's the, it's not just what you're doing. It's who you're working with. And I think we both likely know great people at, at MoFo, no doubt. But for whatever reason, it sounds like the combination of, you know, with the factors you had going on also when you're early in your career. And I like partners repeating this because it's hard to be a new lawyer. It just is. You don't actually know what you're doing. And we all hope that you're working with some great mentors who make it easy, but there's so many layered things to that, that, I mean, it, it, it makes sense to me, but it's funny to me that you mentioned you didn't love civil litigation because after that time, um, those first five, six years of your career, you did go on to be an AUSA. And that is also civil, That well, it's criminal, I guess, at that point. But tell, tell us about that. So how does that transition happen? Well, and I will say, and if I can just go back to my, my days in civil litigation really quickly, I think a part of it, and that's something that can't be understated, was being a person of color in a very large law firm was tough because I don't think, and I don't want to blame the people that I was working with, but you don't get the same kind of mentorship and kind of training and chances you get, or you didn't back then at this particular firm. So it was just a very different experience for me. And I I think that probably colored part of it, unfortunately, and I wish it hadn't, but it did. But ultimately, one of the greatest things that happened while I was there, and again, you have to take everything with a silver lining and look at the bright side, is I met someone who ended up being a sibling of one of the U.S. attorneys in L.A. or in California. And it truly helped, I think. I, I don't want to say it was the only thing because I think I would have qualified on the merits, but I, having this person know me at least got my foot in the door for an interview. And I also had a couple of friends who were at the U.S. attorney's office, so I applied and I got the job that truly I wanted my entire career. I mean, everything I, up until that point was what I wanted to do. I will say it's the best job. I had. And I think for folks who do it, they all look back and say, it's the best job I'll ever have. Those four years were amazing. And I think I got to do exactly what I wanted. I was in federal court, you know, on a regular basis, trying cases in front of federal judges, in front of federal juries, and going against, you know, really amazing defense attorneys. And it was just fun. You know, it was really, really fun. Yeah, I'm also in the midst. I'm not, I'm not sure if you've watched, but I'm watching the show Billions, which has yeah. a lot of a lot of AUSAs. So I'm just, I'm just thinking about that right now. But also, um, an important distinction, particularly for the law students or people thinking about law school listening, is you said civil litigation wasn't so much what I liked. And what, what I initially heard was maybe it was litigation that you didn't like, but it was civil. So when you got turned were criminal, it sounds like the pace of that work and the being on your feet in court probably most days it sounds like that really appealed to you. And so I just wanted to draw that distinction because there is, there's litigation, but you, there's different kinds of litigation. There is, and there is, but there's also a different factor as well. And I think one of the now senior judges here in LA, and I appeared before him a number of times, he's a black district court judge. His name is Terrence J. Hatter. Judge Hatter's his name. Amazing judge. He was the chief judge of the central district for a while, but I appeared a bunch of times in front of him. And he would always say the most civil attorneys he had in his courtroom were criminal attorneys. 
And it's an interesting concept, and I don't think people always understand it when they see it. But when you're on the criminal side, it's a very civil practice. You don't have a lot of nasty letter writing, a lot of nasty emails, a lot of nasty phone calls. You really work with the other side to get to the evidence and get to the law. You could have a serious dispute or disagreement about the facts of the law, but it never becomes personal, ever. And part of it is because when I was with the government, I knew I was likely going to prevail and justice was going to come out. And if I didn't, it's because the jury decided that I didn't have enough evidence and so be it. When you're in the defense, you have really no reason to poke the bear. There's no reason to make the government upset or, or be insulting. So what ends up happening is instead of trying to get at somebody and pick at them and, you know, and I hate to say it, but the Nazi letter writing campaigns you sometimes see in civil litigation, which doesn't always happen, but you don't see that at all in criminal cases because there's no reason to it. So it becomes more of a game of chess and it really is very high level and the writing is usually, you know, very intense and you really focus on the arguments and the facts. It's just a, it's a very different way of practicing law, which really appealed to me and what to me brings it back to the very base level of being a professional lawyer. Thank you so much. That distinction makes a lot of sense. I wanted to share with everybody, if you're curious to hear about another Foley partner who's also a former AUSA, check out episode 35 with Byron McLean. Um, but then Jaime, back to your path. So it's great being, you know, working for the government, you did it for four years. So what, so what happened? What caused you to be interested in returning to private practice? <laughs> it's not the reason that people would think. And so I really, my, my thought process was I'm going to stay at the U.S. Attorney's Office and do that for a long, long time. And then I'm going to be a judge. Like it just, I wanted to be a Superior Court judge or, you know, if my dream came true, a district court judge. And then what happened was during my first year at the U.S. Attorney's Office, my wife had our first son. And <laughs> two and a half years later, we had twin boys. And so we had three boys in four years. And that really was the end of my government career. Because in LA, you cannot afford to be, or it's hard to afford to be a federal prosecutor and raise a family uh, in Los Angeles. So at that point, I realized, okay, I probably need to go back to private practice. Yeah, I could take some of these skills to a place that'll maybe pay me a little bit more. What's right. funny is Byron's story is not that different, and that I think he had twins as well. I think not not three kids, but two, where he was like, "Let me reconsider this." Right. Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting concept. I think people don't realize like you don't you know money shouldn't be the thing that's motivating you, but also you have to survive. You have to pay the bills, and you've got to feed your family. Well, and that's also what's, I think, fun about this podcast is we're really getting an insight into why people have made certain moves, you know, ultimately why they are, are at Foley. But there's a, a number of things that are outside of like, what's my highest passion in life? There's just realities of, you know, growing a family, supporting a family. So I think, you know, that will make a lot of sense to people. So then how did you approach this? Like, how does Foley come on the scene? How do you figure out where you're going to go once you want to make that transition? Sure. And so, it was a bit different back then in terms of the practice. I, you know, when I was leaving the U.S. Attorney's Office, I started getting calls from friends of mine at big firms, people that I knew, saying, "Hey, I hear you might be leaving. Would you be interested in interviewing with us?" This I didn't even put my resume together. It truly happened very organically, and I, I got a call from a few people, and one person in particular was Pam Johnson, who's also a partner here at Foley with me, and she sort of described what she was doing, and I had never heard of Foley. And to be perfectly frank, it hadn't even crossed my radar. I was looking at firms that were based in LA or San Francisco. And at that point, I wasn't sure whether to stay in LA or we were, we were going back home. And what I decided to do was, you know, I really wanted to focus on a firm that had a government enforcement practice, like a white collar defense practice, which is what I wanted to do. It had offices nationwide because that really lent itself to sort of 
having clients that I would want to be able to service and work with and have people that I liked. You know, those are some of the things I really cared about. And having worked at Deloitte and then at the U.S. Attorney's Office and at my first firm, I knew what I wanted and what I didn't want. And I, I sat down and I, I made a list and I thought, okay, different firms. And and I kept going back to Foley because of the people. And it really was a thing at the time that, that drew me to Foley more than anything else. And again, you know, what I tell people all the time when they're going through recruiting and interviewing, it's so hard because you go through undergrad or high school thinking I want to pick the best college to go to. You look at the rankings. Then you go and you want to go to graduate school and say, I want to go to the best law school I can go to. And say, I want to go, you know, look at the rankings again. The problem is people look at rankings in law firms on Amalaw or whatever they're looking at and think it's the same process. And it couldn't be any further from the truth because unless your name happens to be one of the names listed on one of the partnerships that's in the Amlaw 10 or 20 or 30, why would it matter where they are in the Amlaw rankings? What should matter is they have a practice you like, the people you want to work with, in the city you want to be in, and do you see yourself working with those people on a day-to-day basis? That should be the only thing that matters. And I think people get seduced by the name. And I, I will say I did the same thing. You know, I, I, I did it. And I think that's why something like caution people, because I know that picking a firm based on the name doesn't always get you the results you want, at least people that you want to work with and the work you want to do. And so, you know, I chose fully and sort of a leap of faith. I thought, well, I, I like the people that are there and I don't know much about them, but everyone that I have met, I really enjoy. And so I thought, why not go there? Why not, you know, and, and I am so glad I did because it is born true. I, you know, I will say, and I, it's a joke I make to people, but when I'm interviewing, I chose Foley and I love the people I work with. And I, every day I go to work and I like every day I, I work with and I see people I work with and I smile when I see them and I say hi. And I may not be best friend of them, I not, may not see them every weekend, but I truly enjoy everybody I work with. And I could say that I can't demand another job where that's happened other than being at the U.S. Attorney's Office. When I was at MoFo, I dreaded that. And coming here every day, I really enjoy it. And would I rather be on the beach in Hawaii with my feet having a drink? Absolutely. But if I have to work, why not work with people that I, people I really enjoy, right? And that shouldn't be that that be your primary force in life. Well, and here you are 15 years later. And something you listed some things that people should consider. And I think built into this is finding that firm that's also going to support you. And I get students, and I know you do too, all the time that are like, but Alexis, how can I tell if this firm cares about diversity and inclusion? Which is the same as someone saying, how can I tell if this firm's going to care about me? And what I've said is all the websites look the same. A lot of the language you're going to find on that is the same. But what you're trying to figure out is what the culture is of the firm, what the feedback environment is of the firm, and how they're going to support and develop you. And by the way, that doesn't have to have the words diversity and inclusion next to it. That just goes for all for all new attorneys. And I just think you really, really spoke to that. And I want to. We'll talk a little bit more about Foley, particularly your role as um, hiring partner. But I do want to dig in a bit to your current practice. So you summarized it when we first jumped on, but state it again and just give us a sense of. So you know, what are you working on? You know, maybe even what are you up to right now? Okay, so my practice. In the during a pandemic is very different than my practice pre-pandemic. A lot of my work over the past few years has revolved around anti-corruption work. And for those that don't know what that means and who are in law school and sort of looking at it for the first time, I really, when I was maybe my third or fourth year here at Foley, I was sort of working with a partner who had a real big practice in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And it really is an anti-corruption law that's on the books in the US, but it applies to companies and individuals all around the world. 
And I thought, God, that's fascinating. It's enforcement work. I'm going to go to DOJ or the SEC, and it's international. And so I get to possibly even travel internationally because I speak Spanish. And so that has all come to fruition. So a lot of my work, I do help clients who have operations internationally, and they either are concerned that someone in their company is bribing, they've gotten an allegation there's been bribery, worst case scenario, they've gotten a DOJ or SSS subpoena are saying we have suspicions that this is going on, and they launch an internal investigation. And what that means is I and an associate will travel and we'll pick up our bags and head to Peru or Colombia or Argentina or Mexico and spend time down there working directly with the client to find out what happened. And we also have companies put together compliance programs. We also make sure their compliance programs are working correctly. So it's a whole range of international anti-corruption work. That's a big part of my work. I also do the general run-of-the-mill white-collar criminal defense here in LA, which is you know people accused of bank fraud or mail fraud or you know mortgage fraud, for example. And, and there's a whole range of things that happen in the US, but a big part of my practice pre-pandemic was a lot of travel internationally. And, and I was actually, I think, one of the first partners in our group to start traveling again, because I had a client say to us, we need boots to the ground in Nicaragua. This is in April of this year, and can you go? And I said, yes, I'm happy to do it. We'll, we'll get down there and do it. And so that's really a lot of my practice. And it, and it's, it sounds fun. And, and I will say it really is a lot of fun. The associates who work in my practice and work with me, they really love it. And I don't think it's because they like working with me. I think they just like working in these kind of cases because they're fascinating and they're a lot of fun. But I've got a call in a little while with someone from the DOJ. And it's fun because you're working with really high-level practice practitioners on the other side on the government. And so you get a, a bit of everything. You get a chance of writing, you get a chance of arguing your case with the government, and you get the chance of, to, to travel and meet interesting clients in different places. So that's really a, a big part of my practice and what I do right now. All right, I have a couple things. So I think in terms of your practice group, I've had Olivia Singleman on, and then also Christopher Swift on the show. And I think he's the... Now, Christopher Swift has a very unique practice. So in, so, in some in some ways, I may find yours to be maybe a little more emblematic of what the Jedi partners are working on. And I, I'm sorry, I don't have their, the episode numbers at the disposal, but for those interested in government and government enforcement, defense investigations work, Olivia Singleman, Christopher Swift. But Olivia, I recall, did a good job at also mentioning some of the other agencies involved in the work. She was on a number of podcasts ago, but I was just wondering if, so you mentioned how you're assisting these clients doing these investigations, ultimately to ward off litigation because something, because there's been the specter of a potential violation. How do those, how does that come to be? Like how, how do they know it's time to call Jaime? Okay. So what ends up happening is we have clients who, for example, there may have, we have operations in Peru. And they get an anonymous complaint by somebody saying, or even from their internal accountant saying, hey, we think we found some really strange invoices that don't appear to be correct. Everything's in Spanish, and we believe that there may be some bribery going on. The general counsel then calls us and says, hey, do you have somebody who does this kind of work and can you know, translate these documents and sort of understand what's going on, do some initial inquiry to figure out whether there's really an issue there? Then they bring me in our, you know, bring me in Olivia. Olivia worked on me, worked with me since I think she was a first year associate. And Olivia is one of my favorite people in the world, not just a firm. She's just an amazing, amazing associate and now senior counsel. 
And, you know, they'll come in and we'll do the research, we'll do an investigation, meaning that we'll interview people, we'll collect documents, and ultimately make a decision. Do we have to disclose this to the DOJ or the SEC, or do we not? And, and at that point, we make the decision with the company because there's ramifications on both ends if we do or don't disclose. The flip side is when the company gets an external request, sometimes what happens is that same whistleblower who would have directly gone to the company, they'll make a whistleblowing complaint to the SEC or to the DOJ. And then the DOJ says, oh, company X, you know, let me send you a subpoena and ask you some questions because it appears you may have an issue. And at that point, the alarm bells start going off at the company, lights start flashing, and they say, we've got to bring in somebody who deals in this area of law. And that's when they look at, you know, fully in our practice in the Government Enforcement Defense Investigations Group, to look at our international practice and see if we're the right fit. And we really specialize in this area. We've been in this practice longer than most firms have. We were one of the firms that really started this, God, over 20 years ago. And as a result, we have people who've been doing this for a very, very long time. And so that's how, how our practice starts. And that, you know, it comes into one of those two areas. And once in a while, we'll get a random call from somebody saying, hey, you know, we're starting an operations internationally. Can you help us to make sure we don't do something wrong? Can you make sure, help us put together programs or compliance policies so that, you know, if something does pop up, we're able to cash it before it becomes a problem going forward. I really appreciate that. Um, it's an help, a helpful primer. I, by the way, did look Olivia Singleman's episode for those who want to hear more about the work you've mentioned is episode 34. And also, you know, Jaime, you might make know this, the listeners have probably gleaned this, but yeah, in a former life, I was a complex commercial litigator. I never touched anything related <laughs> to what you just said. And I just think it's so important also for the law students listening this is a great place for them to learn about different practice groups because you're when you're in school, it's always like corporate or litigation, and you don't necessarily understand nuances between practice groups. So I just think that is so helpful. But I want to talk to you about a couple other leadership roles that you have in the firm. So we've talked about hiring partner. I'm actually going to save that for the end. Before that, I just want to talk about your role as co-chair of the firm's Hispanic Attorneys Affinity Group. And I know you've been, you know, at the helm of that group for quite some time. You talked a bit earlier about the experience being one of few attorneys of color in a large law firm. And then also we're recording this during Hispanic Heritage Month. (laughs) So, you know, it'll, it'll be posted during that month as well. And I just, I wanted to talk about your leadership there. One, thank you for your leadership there as well. But I think there's a lot about being a person of color and big law particularly now for you, uh, you know, a Hispanic partner in, in, in big law. And I don't know to what extent there's either comments you have on that or experiences you'd want to share, but it's something to highlight because, you know, we don't have enough people who look like you, you know, in, in these leadership roles at firms. And it's just something I think is important to raise. One thing I've always wanted to do, Alexis, and it's something that's been part of my career is I've always tried to go and figure out how can I give back? What can I do to help other students sort of figure out who don't have the resources or the sort of the support or the guidance from someone to sort of tell them what to do going forward? And I've tried to go back to law schools and when I was before, I go back to my undergrad and talk to folks and try to get them to understand what it's like and sort of give them opportunities about either recruiting or just advice. But within the firm, I think, you know, having people that have some of the same background and interests and shared history helps so that you can sort of relate. And also, you know, to be perfectly frank, I mean, I, I think you mentioned it, numbers aren't great for diverse attorneys in big law. They're just not. And 
I think Foley's doing a great job, you know, doing working on diversity and trying to kind of build that. But the way we really have to build it is within, right? Helping each other. And the way you help each other is by knowing each other and thinking of, thinking of each other when something has to come up. And so I make a point for right or for wrong, when a new matter comes in, I think of people of color first. I'm like, that's the first people I'm going to go to and try to find, to give them a chance to work. And maybe they don't want to work with me. I hope they do, but I'm going to reach out to them because I want them to have those experiences. And, you know, I think the Hispanic Attorneys Affinity Group, American Attorneys Affinity Group, I think it really, our goal is to sort of make sure we all know each other and able to share work with each other and really develop a network, not just inside the firm, but outside the firm as well. And I think it's been a godsend. I've made some amazing friends and we and relationships within the group. People that when I go to the offices, I, I just can't wait to see the different offices when I go to go talk to them and see them. And so I, I always tell people, if you can, even if you're not within the group, like you're not one of those people, join the group, learn about them, try to get more, know, know more people. Because I think the more you develop a network, the better off you're going to be no matter what you decide to do. Yep, absolutely. And I will refrain from turning the rest of this into just a discussion about Foley and Larger's diversity <laughs> inclusion efforts. But it is, it's interesting because I think in many ways as a firm, we're very self-aware, right? We know there's certain areas where like we're, we're doing okay compared to a large law firm. And we know there's a number of areas where doing okay compared to a large law firm is not good enough <laughs> because large law firms in general are not are not doing great. And in addition to the work of affinity groups like yours, there's so much work we're doing on just like the systems and structure of the firm to also help um, with all those recruitment, retention, promotion things. But yeah, it's slower going than any of us would like. I will say in particular with the you know Hispanic or Latinx, whatever co- community name you want to you want to call it, something that I think people often forget is just what a large swath of people you are bringing together under that that umbrella. It's actually, I think, a similar dynamic as well with the Asian Pacific Middle Eastern group. But one, we, you know, I don't know what you want to label a critical mass, but we've decided that, you know, these are the commonalities, but you're bringing together people from a variety of different countries who, you know, generally speak a, a sub- similar, like common language, but not necessarily, by the way, because certain countries don't speak, speak Spanish, but are fall under, you know, the Latin umbrella. And I just, I like to highlight that for people because it's a, the diaspora is very broad. And I know you mentioned your parents were from, was it Mexico and El Salvador? And so you likely grew up, you know, getting you know, both of those different cultures, but I think people often forget it's more than one experience or culture being brought together. <laughs> it's it's not a monolith. We don't, we don't all think the same world. Each country is very different and for good reasons. And, you know, each person brings that culture with them when they, when they meet. And so we all may have different ideas of what it means to be Hispanic or Latino, however you want to describe yourself. And so it is interesting, but I think, you know, there's enough commonalities that it's, it's, even having the discussion among each other is sometimes just so refreshing, right? Because you can see different perspectives and different viewpoints. And, you know, it doesn't hurt to, when, you, when you need work and you, you want to reach out to somebody or you, you were looking for somebody to help you, you know, to have that shared experience. And also, you know, like, for example, Olivia that we keep talking about, she speaks fluent Spanish as well as German. I'm sure you know this. And so because of that, she and I have traveled to Peru together or different places because we're able to work together and two different languages, which is fantastic. And also work in the Hispanic American Attorney Affinity Group, which I think is America. I mean, amazing. Yes. Well, and so, Olivia, I hope people listen to hers because, sorry, you mentioned that also just she epitomizes intersectionality. Also given, you know, she is a member of, you know, the the 
you know, black affinity group as well as the Hispanic affinity group and that people can be more than one thing. And then I think this is a bit of a segue as we wind down, particularly in your role as hiring partner to students. And let's talk to diverse students in particular, maybe, and in particular, racial and ethnic minorities who are like, okay, so how do I tell if a firm would fit be a fit for me? Why Foley and Lardner in particular? And I think we've already touched on this, so at the risk of being repetitive, but I just know it's a question that both of us get a, a lot. And so maybe if you can't jump on the phone with them, you can send them this podcast. I, <laughs> I will say, no, and that's a good question, Alexis. I think I do get that question. Sometimes I get it directly, and sometimes I get it in, that, in, in a different way, or very indirectly I'll ask that question. I, I, what I tell people all the time is, put aside for a moment the name of the firm. And I, and I it's something I, I tell people all the time, because when we're recruiting, you know, Foley, for example, in LA, is not the first name that comes to mind when you were in the law schools. We're just not. And I recognize that. But the flip side is, I ask people, when you're interviewing and you go to the offices and you're actually meeting with people, what do they look like? Who do they look like? And who are you interviewing with? And you know, if a practice area you want to go into doesn't have you that look like you are or like you, what do you think that says about your chances? And this is not to say you aren't going to make it and that you couldn't be successful, but I guess I've always thought to myself, and, and maybe I'm I'm not self-confident enough to say this about myself, but it's not just about me. I don't think I would be where I am if it wasn't for a ton of people helping me along the way. And I could think of individuals at every stage of my career that at different stages gave me their hand and pulled me up when I was struggling. And I think to myself, and I tell people this, is like if you look around Maybe it may not be based on university or based on your culture or whatever it is, but do you see people that are willing to do that for you at the firm you're interested in, right? That should be the key indicator because no matter what you want to do with your career, and you as a first-year lawyer, second-year lawyer, second-year law student, how do you know what you want to do? I wouldn't have ever guessed in a million years when I was a first-year lawyer that I'd be doing what I'm doing now. I didn't even know this existed, right, this whole area of law. And so... But what I always re- realized was that's a place I can go to and work with because they're people who I think are going to help me. And all along the, you know, around the route, everywhere I, I went to where I felt that way, it was true. And so I look at Foley and I think of myself when I'm interviewing, I tell people this is when you're walking through the hallways, see how people interact with each other, not just to you, obviously, and the person's dropping you off, but with the staff. And, you know, ask that same question. Could you see yourself, if you had to be at a printer printing something out, not that people print anymore. But at you know 10 p.m. because you have to file something by 11 p.m. Could you see yourself doing with that person? Do you think that person would help you? And if you don't see that, then why are you considering that firm? Right? Why, why is it even your radar? Would they help you? And would they give you feedback? That is your north star. That that mentoring. Um, and it's really hard to discern when you're just you know doing you know quick interviews. But and we haven't we didn't really have time and we you know generally don't Jaime to talk about how you learned to be a lawyer. But I'm certain there were many people over the years who took the time to sit down and say you know you drafted this well or you did this right or wrong. And I think are you in an environment where you think that people will do that for you? And I've I've shared it before. I'll share it very briefly. But so I was a summer associate at Foley Summer 2006. So Jaime, I just missed you. I was here like a year before you joined the firm and. A uh, former chair of Chicago litigation, Mike Conway, I remember he sat down with me for about 45 minutes and went through a memo. 
There's no reason why a senior partner litigation chair has to ever sit down with a summer associate for 45 minutes. Nobody would notice if he didn't, right? And at the time, I was too busy being mortified by all the, you know, markups he had to necessarily fully appreciate it. But to me, it was really emblematic of what I think a lot of the, the, the partners and the attorneys that Foley are willing to do and still do in a way that simply isn't a given everywhere. I hope it is in a lot of places, by the way, because it's really important to diversity inclusion efforts. But <laughs> I just think it I just think it it does show what what we mean is like, is this place gonna have time to develop me? And I think too often people find later on that that place actually doesn't. And you're kind of in it, in it for yourself, have to figure out. So I think that's really good insight and advice. And I'm certain that people will potentially be reaching out to you after this to ask you more <laughs> questions. Um, but, but as we wind down, and you just gave such great advice, so I feel a little bad asking, but I'll ask it as a two-part question. You can answer whatever part you want. One, is there anything else you wanted to touch on that we haven't? And then additionally, general big picture advice to somebody pursuing a legal career. I don't know if it's what you wish you knew or just advice to that law student or junior lawyer. It's a good question. I think what I would say, the big picture advice that I'd give to students who are trying to figure out what they want to do is not to stress too much when they're in law school about what their career is going to be. I wish I'd known and I wish I'd really thought about instead of early on figuring out, okay, in 20 years, I want to do X. I think you know, really focusing on trying to become the best lawyer you can when you first start and whatever you're doing, and then organically trying to figure out what it is you like. Because I think what ends up happening is, and I see this far too often with many of my friends who are in big firms or practicing law, they don't always do what they love to do. And they do it because it pays the bills or because they're good at it or because they think it's the right thing to do for them for their careers, but not because they're really happy. And ultimately, I, I couldn't trade what I do for anything else because I know I wouldn't be as happy practicing law. And I, I think really trying different things and with different people and saying yes to as much as possible and different opportunities will give you a really good insight of what the law is like and what areas you might like and might not like. That's what I would say. I think the big picture advice is be open, you know, be have an open mind and try different things and say yes to different opportunities because you never know. One thing might hit and you realize, wow, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I love what I do. And I'm so happy. Oh, that is fantastic advice that it is possible to find the practice group that really lights you up. And by the way, when you get fit and curiosity and passion, that's where the grit and a lot of the work ethic can also come from because you're just, you like what you're doing. I mean, that is fantastic advice. My final, final question. If someone has questions or comments, wants to reach out to you, can they feel free to find you on Foley's website and send you an email? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ivy. Thanks, Alexa. Good chat chatting. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Jaime Guerrero. I wanted to record a bit of an update, which is that after 15 years with Foley and Lardner, as of May 2022, Jaime left Foley to move in-house. Yes, he has moved to the other side. Of course, he remains a friend of the firm, and we wish him nothing but the best. But if you'd like to reach out to Jaime, I suggest you find him on LinkedIn and reach out that way. Good luck, Jaime, in all of your future endeavors. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. 
This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 